magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you G'day everyone and welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and today I get to interview for you guys one of my favourite human beings I've ever met in my entire life. He's a horseman from Canada named Jonathan Field and if you've ever, if you've ever met one of those people that just being around them makes you feel like a, being a better human being, um, Jonathan's one of them and he's also, he just... He just has this amazing energy. I've, you know, I've read about and seen like documentaries on like some of those Indian holy men that people want to be in their presence just to feel the the presence of them, the energy of them. I I know what they're talking about because when I hang with Jonathan Field, I kind of get that. So I'm I'm ex- if you don't know who Jonathan Field is, I'm I'm so excited to introduce you to the whole world of Jonathan Field because he's like I said, he's one of my favorite human beings and I'm sure after listening to him in this podcast, he'll be one of your favorites too. Jonathan Field, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Mark, it's great to be here, my friend. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Great for- to hear your voice. Yeah, you too. Thanks for joining me. It's been a while since we've seen each other. I know, too long. It's this dang uh, COVID thing and the Canadian border being shut down. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I think the, I think the last time I saw you was at the Western States Horse Expo in Pomona, was it? I think so, yeah. Either that or the one in Sacramento. But it wasn't very much before that that you were up at, at my place uh, in Bradner. You know, we went to the Grouse Mountain. Yeah, that was, I'll tell you what, that was like 17. I think was yeah. when that was. That's how long ago that was. Because I, <laughs> poor Jonathan Field. So I rock up to Jonathan's place. And if you guys who've listened to the podcast, uh, you would have heard in the first two episodes about the changes in the way I've looked at things in the past few years. And I had just had that amazing experience with this Mustang that lay down at this clinic in Texas. And so my mind is just racing crazily. <laughs> and so I, I'm up in Canada and I go to spend the day with Jonathan and we go and take the chairlift to the top of Gross Mountain. Is it Gross Mountain? Is that what it's called? Yeah, Gross. Gross. Yeah. Gross. Like Sorry. Bird, like Gross. Yeah, yeah, Gross. Gross Mountain. And I sit up there on the top of this beautiful mountain, snow-covered mountain, looking out over the valley, and I just <laughs> vomit up my guts to Jonathan about, whoa, everything looks different these days. And, uh, yeah, it was great to, great to talk to you about that because you've, uh, you knew exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, no, that was an awesome time to connect. Now, I've sold that place. We don't live there anymore. That was a big change in our lives. We uh, we moved up into the uh, interior of BC a little further. Yeah, I think you had just maybe bought the ranch you have further up there now, but you still have yeah. that other house, I think, yeah. That's right, yeah. So, um, so how's... Um, this whole last year of COVID stuff's been a bit crazy for most people. How's it been for uh, Jonathan Field? <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, I mean, there's so I think like so many people, we all have so many emotions about this. And, uh, you know, I really feel for, like, I, I really, you know, feel sincerely for the people that don't have what we have. And, you know, 
in, in, in America, in Canada. You know, so I, any inconvenience that I've had has been really relatively insignificant, um, you know, in terms of the business and things like that. Our family's healthy. Um, you know, the, the perspectives that you get to have, you know, get the kids home. One of the things that we always, we always kind of want, we fantasize with homeschooling our boys, Weston and Mason and Angie and I, uh, Angie's my wife. And, um, and Weston is 14, Mason's uh, 12. Uh, yeah, 12 now. And, uh, we fantasized about homeschooling the motors. We kind of thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to have the boys with us? When we used to tour in the motorhome, you know, Weston used to miss 70 school days a year. The principal reminded me one time, she said, Jonathan, you know, Weston has missed more school days than all the other kids put together. <laughs> you guys are doing a great job and Angie's staying on top of it. But, you know, I wanted to write a letter just so, so that no one thought you were negligent to your son, that he's still being educated. So I just want you to know that we're looking after you. And thank you. And when he joined into hockey, that was it for that. He, you know, he started to be focused at home. So I, not to go off track, but, you know, putting the, bringing the kids home when school shut down was like a dream come true for me. On the business side, it was scary, of course, because I was in California, um, in uh, just out of Livermore. I was actually in um, Brentwood and I was in the middle of a clinic. And that morning, uh, they declared a state of national emergency uh, in in, in the country, in the U.S., and I, I was I just started a clinic, had a wonderful group, um, and it was, it was just smooth work. You know those clinics that you just go, we are going to have an amazing time, and it was still at that point where they were saying, you know, you can still get together with groups of 50, and, you know, we really didn't know, you know, how big a deal. I didn't really know how big a deal this was, and I was outdoors, a completely outdoor facility, so we thought we are way inside. And then when they said there's only going to be possibly four points of entry into Canada and they declared a state of national emergency, I thought when 9-11 happened, they shut that border down and it was pretty serious. So I called everybody over and I said, it was after lunch break, and I said, hey guys, get together, you know, I, I got to talk to you for a minute. And they said, should we bring our notepads? <laughs> and I was like, no, I probably don't need your notepads. Come on over. And I, I just said to them, you know, the, the situation and Angie had just had a knee surgery so she was at home and I thought, you know, the boys, they're going to be at home and she could use extra help and I don't want to be stuck across the border. So uh, I got in a car and I had a heck of a time getting a rental car to go one way all the way to Bellingham from the Bay Area. Right. I finally got one and uh, I drove 920 miles straight from, uh, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon and I got into Bellingham at the airport, grabbed the taxi took my bags across over to the border, took a taxi to the border, walked across the border, and Angie had her ice pack on her knee. She drove the four hours down from the ranch and at the border. It's just such a surreal thing, you know, walking across the border like that. And anyways, we all isolated when I got home. They, 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 it was a request that we isolate. Like three days later, it was like mandatory, but it was a request that they, they said, listen, we, we're asking you to stay at home as soon as you either be by yourself or as soon as you touch your family 14 days. And we did. And uh, I remember we had it on a little chalkboard in the kitchen said, you know, 10 days left or whatever. And it, and, and at first, like, you know, you go to town for coffee, go here, go there. You're always busy. You know, all of us were busy, all going different directions. And by the time it got to day six on the countdown, we stopped marking the dates because it didn't matter anymore. It wasn't like, oh, until we could get to day one and go to town or it just, it was weird how all of a sudden it went to day six, it took that many days to get to where we're just like, we're happy at home. This is cool. This is, this is excellent. And it was amazing on that level, you know, but I, I really feel for the people that are in the countries that, 
you know, I think of the third world countries and things like where they just don't have the support that we do, uh, the controls that we do, uh, the infrastructure that we do. Um, I'm sure there's some suffering going on. Or, you know, well, even, know there is. even in Canada and the US in with with um, like people that that live in an apartment. You know what I mean? How would you like oh, being an apartment stuck true, with, you true. know, three kids in an apartment sort of thing? You know, at least we we can go outside and work with our horses and, you know, you can go outside and be with your kids and, you know, so you can't go to town. But, you know, I, I, I haven't been to town much at all. I've realised that, you know what, I'm a bit of a hermit since, since I, I have no <laughs> – I can't go anywhere. I'm quite, I'm quite happy staying right here. So, um, yeah, well, that's a huge drive driving up there. So walking across the border, that – must have been an odd, odd sensation. It was. It was. It was the first time I really felt the international border, and I haven't traveled like worldwide at all. So it's just me in the U.S., right? Like, and I've never felt that being a border. Like, I don't feel, you know, American or Canadian. Like, I mean, I don't feel like when I'm in America. Like, I just feel like I'm at home when I'm down there teaching, and like I don't have a. Um, a big feeling about that border. So I've lived beside the border my whole life. We used to go across every day to get, my mom would go across and get cheese and milk and, and cheaper gas. Like, you know, years ago as a kid, it was great ice cream in Bellingham, you know? So we were back and forth. I never felt that border before. Uh, of course, there was always issues bringing horses across with health certificates and so on. But it was so crazy to think, you know, you got to get across the border to get to your family. And uh, that was the first time I kind of felt that. Wow, it kind of made me feel. Have you ever seen a movie called Bridge of Spies? Oh, I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Oh, it was a really good movie, but there's like a, a you know, like a spy prisoner exchange at the end, and they've got to walk across this bridge from, uh, might have been from East Germany to West Germany or one of those sorts of things. But it, when you said that walking across the border, I kind of had a, a, a mental picture of that. Yeah, wow. And so, um, you know, I, I really think the whole COVID thing, I mean, it's, it's, it's not been good by any means, but there, there has been some elements of, of positives in it. You know, like um, people are starting to, like, the, like cities are starting to maybe decentralise just a little bit. And I don't mean fall to pieces, but I mean people don't have to live stuck in an apartment because they don't have to be close to their work. They don't have to commute. They can move further out. I was talking to a guy from... New York City a while ago, and he was telling me that uh, housing prices in, or the you know the apartment prices and condo prices and stuff in New York are going down because people are actually being able to move out and um, you know get a little bit of space around them, have a house with maybe half an acre or something or other, you know, and get out and get outside and be in nature a little bit more rather than being cooped up in there. And and uh, you know I think people are spending more time with their kids. I, yeah, I think there's been. Like everything, everything has positives and negatives, and I do think there's been quite a few positives about the whole thing. Yeah, it, it's you know, NBC, uh, we you know, we've been really lucky on the level of our cases. Now the cases are climbing now, but the cases are haven't been like they have in other places, and we haven't had the the you know, what they call we've never had a lockdown. You know, we've had like a it's restrictions, but not. Like, you know, where they have the shelter in place, like they have down, down in the States in different places. And I think in Ontario, they're doing some now different places in the world. I was talking to a guy in Bulgaria a couple of days ago and he had a curfew. Like you can't go out after a period of time. Yep. So, you know, we haven't had that. Like I was in downtown Vancouver yesterday, last night or night before last and, uh, and in Vancouver yesterday. And the, the streets are full. Everybody's got a mask on. 
the buses are full. The, I couldn't believe the amount of people. So there wasn't really a feeling of, you know, of course, the bars and nightclubs and that kind of thing, they're all shut down. But I think we've had it pretty lucky in British Columbia. I can speak to that anyway, uh, on the level of freedom. Um, but I, I was doing some Zoom calls with some of my students early on. And it was like April, middle of May. And I could sense already one of the things that was the, you know, just the, you know, not having the social thing of events, being able to get together and events, and the mental uh, strain of that. I was talking to a, a young lady that I was in Vancouver the other day, and she had two friends of hers uh, actually commit suicide that she's known in the last year that are kind of like close acquaintances. And, um, and they were just, you know, mentally obviously had some really tough times going on. And this was, you know, maybe the, the, the catalyst or something, but it, it's pretty scary stuff when, when that, that's going on and they feel like they can't reach out or they can't connect or whatever the causes are. Yeah, I, I do think this whole the whole thing has caused a bit of a more of a mental health crisis. And I think if you were had, um, you know, if you were a little troubled before, this could, you know, financially or whatever, mm-hmm. it could it could certainly certainly affect you. I think so. I think we're just so lucky to um, be able to do what we do and and keep. Um, you know, I was I was lucky. I had an online business before. COVID came came along, so I, you know I've been at home. I haven't I haven't been traveling doing clinics, but um, it hasn't really affected me uh, yeah. that much. But I think we're just so fortunate to um, be able to stay at home and be with our horses. Have you got you've got all your horses there? Have you? They are all here. Yeah, they're all around me right now. I'm 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 at the James Creek Ranch, which is where we teach camps. It's my dad and I own this ranch together, and um, and that's where. All of my horses are now. The new ranch that we bought in Kamloops um, is uh, is just getting. We're building it right now, so the horses will move over there in a couple of months. You know, work when, when this. One of the things that kind of I kept saying in the beginning of this COVID thing, and I don't want to lessen at all the the, the tragedy of this, this, this huge loss uh, in, in financial, in life, and illness, and things like that. But one of the things that hit me early on was. At what time in human history has the entire world stopped for now a long time? At the time, it was like, you know, I thought I didn't know how long it was going to go. And we've all reflected on what's important. And with, without like an asteroid coming at us, we've never had an asteroid come at us like that, you know, in our, in our life, but without a world war, without, you know, this thing, you know, if you, if you do what they say do, or if you, um, like it's, it's hard to get in your house if you don't leave, <laughs> if you don't bring it in, right. if you, whatever the steps are, you know, it's not, it's not radiation that's coming through. It's not, you know, in everybody's faucets. Uh, so it, it's been one of those things where I'm, you know, I, I hesitate to say it, but there, you know, I just thought, man, imagine if we went to nuclear war, like there's a time where right. there's a, there's a problem here. And this is something that I, so I, the reason I said it is because I, I thought to myself, we, there is going to be light here. There's other, these are other issues, technology, bright people, the communication day. There's going to be light after this. And how much not knowing how long it would be, I really didn't. But I just thought I'm going to use this time. I, I, I want to be better at things. I want to know more. Uh, I want to connect with my boys, you know, even more, uh, teach some things. You know, how much time do I have before we're going to be right back in the swing? Because I know we will get back in the swing. Uh, it's going to happen. 
Yeah, I think it's been, I think it's really made people take a step back and slow down and look at what's, what's um, really important. You know, one of the, one of the people that I really got into reading uh, about the same time that I came up and saw you was someone named Brene Brown. I don't know if you ever listened to Brene Brown or have heard of Brene Brown, but she, you know, one of the big things that I got out of her books was the whole culture of having to go, 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 go. And how, how you know how damaging it is, and how it's not cool, and 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 so I'd started to work on being still, you know, like I'd started to meditate and and just take time to be still, because I, I I really couldn't not be doing something if I wasn't doing something, I'd find something I had to do, and it doesn't necessarily mean I was being terribly productive, but and she said it's all just you know it's it's all just numbing behavior uh, it's just just avoiding being with yourself and i really think that um like in one of those books she talks about she spent a day in an elevator in a, a, a building in washington dc or new york city one or the other it was a law firm and she spent the day riding up and down the elevator just listening to the conversations and one guy'd say like maybe two guys in the elevator and one would say so what time did you go home last night and he said, well, I was here until three. How about you? And the other guy says, I haven't left yet. Like it was a badge of honor, you know what I mean? And you think about it, these people have families and when you get stuck into that whole got to go, 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 there's a real reason for it. And I think some of the time, a lot of us, that reason is we just can't sit still and be with ourselves. And I really think this whole thing has um, really almost forced people to take a step back and do that. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a uh, – that part of it is 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 a good thing. Um, now, sorry, I asked you about your horses a minute ago, and I was going to ask you, how's my friend Hal? <laughs> I just gave him an apple 10 minutes ago, oh, and you? I told him we'd be talking. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, he's doing really good. If you guys listening, so uh, Hal is one of – one of Jonathan's horses, and Hal's pretty famous. Hal is a, a Breyer model horse. Uh, when did when did they when did Breyer make him a, a model horse? A couple of years ago, wasn't it? That was last not not this July, but last July at the Breyer Fest in Kentucky. Okay. Yeah, and how was that? Oh, it was. You know, the crazy part work was it was. I had. I mean, I, obviously, I've seen Breyer horses. You know, in the, in the tax stores and stuff, and and I didn't have the level of awareness of just how big that is. And when we get all, get Hal all the way to Kentucky, uh, and he was, you know, in his you know, mid twenties and, um, he's, he's been retired for a few years now. And the lady, uh, the lovely person that her name's slips out of my mind right now, but she works with prior horses. And, and she said she was at road to the horse and she watched a demo with Hal. And she just said that partnership, that horse somehow stuck out to her. And it was a few years later, she called me. She said, I haven't, you know, I can't get this horse and you out of my mind. I want to, you know, I, I think how it would be amazing if you're interested, would, would you bring Hal to be you know, kind of honored or more, you know, immortalized as a briar horse? I said, wow. Yeah, of course. And, and then, you know, I go down there and the lineups and the, the little kids, you know, the, the, actually people of all ages, but, but vast majority, you know, um, little girls that just love showing these, like they show them and they, they dress them up and they, they, they inspect them and, and you know, the thing uh, that stuck out for me was 
was these all of these girls, every one of them, or other people there would own a horse if they could. Like you or I get lucky enough to have them in our backyard. Right. But this is their horse. And when they got to touch Hal himself and see how that horse, I just imagine they take that horse back and they set that on their table. And that's that feeling that we get to have. And it what it did for me was I've all I'm always grateful to be around horses, but it just it pushed it another level. I was just like, I look at them all and I often in the clinic get on a horse and I go, man, what an honor to be able to sit on the back of a horse or to play with a horse or to pet a horse or to be around horses or talk about horses. And uh, I, I, it was just like when I seen that, that, that visceral excitement to see him, to touch him and all the other briar horses there, it was just, it was such a, I, I, it, it made so that I could never get jaded in the horse industry. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not even close to it, but I have seen that happen before. And I'm sure you have too, where, you know, people get around horses and they're showing or they're doing something with a horse and they become, you know, jaded about it and disrespectful about it. And oh, I've not, I, not I've, with that light. I have not seen it. I've been it. I've been there. Mm. And and I think when yeah, you are well, there, you fire don't, is gone. When with, I think when you're there, you don't even know you're there. And you know, luckily, I've had some. Yeah. You know, I had some things happen that kind of made me look at the world a bit of a different way. And and uh, yeah, and I tell you what. It all happened all, all at the same time. But that time I came and visited you and I I I had some things happen at clinics that were just they were beyond they were beyond training. They were beyond the horse responded to this cue, whatever, you know. That was it was mm. and and then I come up and, and you know, I wanna so for you guys listening, I was I was in Canada doing some stuff and uh, I had a day off in the roughly the same vicinity as where Jonathan lived. And I said, hey, I've got a day off. And he says, oh, come and, come and hang out. So I wanted to go and hang out with Jonathan for the day. And I didn't think we'd get, we would get to do anything with the horses. I was just going to hang with Jonathan. So I go to his house and he's like, hey, you want to go out and play with the horses? I'm like, okay, yeah. So we go out and uh, he, oh, how you hadn't done much with him for quite a while. and uh, Yeah, a couple so, of years. <laughs> yeah, Taylor had been just hanging out. And so Jonathan got him in the arena and started doing some liberty work with him. And then... He had Jonathan had me try some stuff, and I had Hal kind of going around me. And this is this was when I kind of learned how uh, what a Neanderthal level I was at at the time. Um, Hal's going around me, and you know, Liberty in a circle, and Jonathan says, "Just move him out a little bit." So I kind of lean forward and take half a step towards Hal, and whoa, he's forty feet away, and he's like, "Oh, that's a bit too much. Bring him back in." So I kind of lean back and take half a step back, and Hal's on top of me, and it was like it was like the accelerator in a in a Formula One car or something versus your Prius. It was like, whoa, I I go to move forward, and he moves way away from me, and I go to move backwards, and he he's on top of me, and I'm like, whoa, I was all over the place. And it really, it really made me think, holy cow, you're doing way too much. And, and then I got to see uh, you do something with him that I think I have talked about at every clinic I've ever done since. So for you guys at home, Hal was side on to us about, I don't know, probably 30 feet away. And he was probably 20 or 30 feet off the fence. So let's say he's pointing to our left. Like we're, we're, already, we're side on to him and he's, his head's pointing to the left and his bum's pointing to the right of us. 
and you would probably remember that you would you probably don't even remember this jonathan because it's so normal for you but jonathan said now i'm going to look at his loin i'm going to put some energy and intention to this and watch what hal does and hal moved over away from jonathan like a leg yield so hal's bent in a c-shape and the the middle the belly of the c-shape is away from us and I'm thinking, you know, and we're probably 30 feet away and Hal does this beautiful little leg yield. And I'm thinking, yeah, if I wanted my horse to do that, I could I could figure out how to do that. That's not that big a deal. And then Jonathan says, but if I look, if I take my 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 intention and I look past Hal's head at that post over there and I do the same thing, let's see what happens. And you do that. And Hal moves over again, but this time it's a half pass, which means his body's bent the complete opposite direction than it was before. He's now bent in the direction of travel instead of bent away from the direction of travel. And right then, as I am now, I was speechless. I was like, what the hell did I just see? And that night I I posted something on my Facebook group about uh, what I saw that day. And I said, you know, what I do with horses is basic maths. And what this guy does is quantum physics. And that's actually before I knew what quantum physics was. <laughs> so, but I don't, I don't even know if you remember when you did that because you probably do it all the time. But for me, that was something I'd never seen before. And, yeah, just it just floored me. Like, whoa, this, there is, you know, it's, it's kind of the – that's kind of the the epiphany you have when all of a sudden you realize you don't know anything. What a great day we had, man. That was so cool. Thank goodness for Hal. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was fun. Oh so Hal hasn't been worked for two years, so Jonathan does a bit of liberty with him and then he, he says, Oh hang on, let me show you this. So he gets was it one or two barrels? can't remember. I, yeah, I, probably two if he hasn't Jonathan, been out there for a while. I so Jonathan gets two plastic, those blue plastic barrels and rolls them out in the middle of the ring and stands them up exactly side by side. And then he hops on Hal bareback and he just, just goes down the other. Bareback and bridleless, there's nothing on this horse. Just goes down, hops on him and canters towards those things and jumps. I think it might have even been one barrel. I've got it on my an old phone somewhere. But And then, oh, then, then the bareback bridleless half pass you did at the trot i videoed that on my phone that i think that was what i posted on on uh, my facebook group that night but here is how hasn't been ridden for two years and you hop on him bareback and bridleless and do this half pass at the trot across the arena and the first time you did it he was pretty good and you said no no he doesn't have enough forward you kind of got a little bit more energy to him and you went back around and did it again and the second one was like oh that's an eight that was it was so cool to see and it was for me it was a not a turning point in my journey. Well, I suppose it was a turning point in my journey because it wasn't like I learnt what to do mm. that day. But it gave me an appreciation for what's possible. So thank you for that. Wow. It, was, it was very cool. Oh, cool. Hey. Wow, thank you for sharing it back. I... I was, uh, I'm amazed listening to you now. So cool work. And it, it, I, I, I can relate to you. You get these light posts along the way. It's, it's 
it's uh, something that's like, here's the next piece down the way a little further. And uh, I love how you describe it so clearly because you're, I remember when you came, um, when we were playing around with those horses, I remember just so excited to be with you because I could feel through our conversation up on Grouse Mountain and the drive and everything else. I could just feel like here is one of my kind. Here's a person that uh, is successful, that is doing the thing, but still wants to improve. Still, you know, there's that concept of prove. You're either in a state of proving or improving. And, you know, sometimes you're with someone and they're in a constant state of, uh, they're trying to prove themselves to you or prove themselves to the world. Or there's a person that you meet and they're improving and they're, they're learning and they're curious. And after our visit and then getting to the horses, I, man, this, we're going to have some fun here. And, uh, that it's so neat to hear you say it back because, and now knowing you more and over the years, every time I get to see you and Robin and stuff, you know, I just can see you're always improving. And, and what I love about what you're doing as well, work is you're also, you're also coming out the other end for other people to hear about this. And I think that's so important that we share these stories uh, in the, in the, with humility, like you do, honestly, openness, like you do, because, you know, it, it, I think it's a time where now it's okay. Like it should have been always, but now it's becoming more okay for those of us who are, you know, supposedly supposed to be the person that's got it figured out to say, no, I, I'm still figuring it out. I'm still learning this. I'm still getting better and I'm still getting inspired all the time. And, Loved hearing that story. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, well, I got to thank you because you know it was it was the it was a part of the next part of my journey, and uh, uh, you know it was, it was funny you did that at that time because it was about that time that I had started. Um, I think it was about then I'd started seeing a, uh, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I'm not sure you know this. I'd started seeing a uh, a therapist because I um had you know Barbara Schulte rings a bell. I... She's in the Cowgirl Hall of Fame. She's a she's a cutter. She's won the she won the Futurity. Oh, okay. She but she's now I don't know mental. her, but no no other. She's a mental. Sure. Anyway, I I um, sure sure. She was the one that told me about um. Renee Brown at a uh, horse expo in Madison, Wisconsin. You've probably done that one, have you? The Midwest Horse Fair. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, and so she told me about um, this Brene Brown. So I started listening to this Brene, listening to these Brene Brown books. And, and in one of these books, she said, "You cannot selectively suppress emotions. When you suppress the lower emotions, you automatically suppress the higher ones." And so, and I thought, huh, never really thought about that. And knowing growing up in my generation, you know, boys don't cry, boys don't show fear, boys don't show this. You know, in my family, we didn't show grief. And so I thought, yeah. huh, I've never, I knew I suppressed the lower emotions, but I never thought that would affect the higher ones. I wonder, could I have more joy or more happiness or, because I feel fine. And so I started seeing a, a therapist about that, and that, that took me to a big old rabbit hole. But it, it turned out, I, I figured out that I had been very shut down internally for a long time. And you cannot do what you did with Hal that day unless you have, uh, you know, internal awareness, unless you have not only the full range of emotions, I imagine, but the full the energy in your body. And so my head had been so uh, 
uh, you know, like cut off from my body for such a long time that, you know, I was only only in my head sort of thing. And so doing a lot of that stuff and now I'm, I, now I'm incorporating a lot of a lot of what you inspired me to do with the horses and it's amazing when you can wow when you can you know just have a horse move off your internal energy and your intention and you know because up to that point in time i'd been a like a cue trainer like i give this cue you do this but yeah. The cue was the start of the ask. What I realized with working with Hal that day was the physical movement. That's the last part of the ask. There's a whole lot of other stuff, energy and intention stuff that comes before that. And I think that, yeah. and it's almost like an equine assisted therapy thing because it makes you get out of your head and into your body. And like, you know, for a while there, I was seeing a, a therapist that's called a, a somatic experiencing therapist. And what they try to do is, get you out of your head into your body. And, and now the way I'm doing stuff for the horses is like in order to do it, you have to be out of your head and your body. So it's a it's a somatic practice just working with the horses. So, yeah, so I would say all that was inspired uh, by you and Hal that day. Wow. You know, and I, I think the um, – the one time I heard it said, and I, I continually it comes back to me, and it was – written by Tom Dorrance, and he said, it's a feeling that comes from within inside of you first. And I, you know, I'm sure many people can relate, like the feeling that you have that day, if, if it's just something that you pack with you and you, you can't change it, you're not, not aware of it, you'll notice, you know, like you're, you're, at, um, you're at victim to whatever it is, you're happy or you're you know, upset or angry or short or whatever it is, and then you show up with that to the horse, we can all... I'm sure we can all relate that we've watched our horse respond differently based on that. And I think if we're unconscious of that, then, you know, it's either going to be a good day. We roll the dice. It's not going to be a great day. They'll obey. We resort to cues, you know, like you know, mechanical or obedience type training, which is fine. You know, it gets worse to go to A to B, but there is that other side that you're talking about. And when you can become aware of what that feeling is and, then get control of it and realize, hey, I, I can, uh, you know, change my relationship with this horse. I can change the feeling that the horse has based on what, like Tom was saying, that feeling that comes from within inside. And I think that is when you talk about what you're learning at the council, your, your, uh, your best uh, instant biofeedback <laughs> mechanism <laughs> or trainers are out in your backyard, uh, as I'm sure you're well aware of. Oh yeah, most certainly. And you know, the, the, I think the thing that held me in good stead training horses for other people for so many years was the fact I had no emotions. So right. like horses didn't pick up on good days or bad days or whatever because you know, the batteries were flat. There wasn't any energy coming out of me. And so interesting. And so I don't get I didn't get the highs and the lows. The horses didn't get the highs and the low energy energies from me, which means I and I think for a long period of time, that was for what I was doing and how I was going about things with horses. I think that was a very beneficial thing. Yeah. But then, at some point in time, it has its and I and I wasn't like I set out like I'm going to do this. That's just the way it was. And and for me, I think I'd been that way. For, well, I had been that way for that long. I didn't even know there was another way to be. You know, I, I remember one of the. 
I remember when one of the therapists first suggested I might have depression. I'm like, but don't you have a, you know, I, I think a lot of people when they get diagnosed with depression, they feel different than they used to. So they go see somebody about it and they're diagnosed with depression. I think I'd been that way for so long. It wasn't like I felt any different. You know, so it wasn't like I right. was like, hey, something's going on. I need to fix this. The The only reason I started going to therapist because I read this Brene Brown book and she said, you know, you cannot selectively suppress emotions. And all I wanted to do was, yeah. go, oh, I wonder if I could have more of the upper ones. And yeah. it's not that easy. But but that was, the, that was the start of the whole thing. But, yes, that was, yeah. So you and you and Hal were a, were a big part of that. But, you know, I think, I, you know, for me, I was 50 before I had a bit of a, bit of an epiphany and i know you've talked about this ad nauseum every time someone talks to you they probably bring it up but in case people don't know you were let's say lucky enough and i know it was a terrible accident but you were you kind of had the blessing of having uh like a near fatal accident earlier on to where you really kind of got to take stock of yourself probably before most people get to do that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Of course, of course. Um, yeah, like when I was 19, you know, that I was on a drilling rig in the woods, and we were in the woods at a place called 100 Mile House, a little town in British Columbia. And uh, But we were way past, we were another half an hour into the bush, and a big piece of steel fell down on a drilling rig, on a water well drilling rig. And I had just put my hand in and it was 500 pounds and it crushed my hand and, and work. It just missed my head by about a foot. It, it was eight foot by 500 pounds. And if it came down the top of my head, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. And it trapped me to the rig. And you now we had, you know, we were a long ways from town and town was a band-aid hospital, really hundred miles. You know, they could turn the blood off. They couldn't do anything, couldn't fix me. And they could put, pack me on ice, but I cut my left hand off at the wrist and, the, the thing that, uh, the thing that hit, you know, like when you're the vivid feeling of being trapped to that rig, it didn't just go bing and then I'm free of it. I was trapped to that rig till my cousin George could get a, like it's still, it's still so visceral work. Even right now, in that amount of time I've been talking, the blood has left my limb. And that's something, there's still a physical thing there, but, so I was trapped on that rig until we got a chain and could lift it off. And being stuck there, grabbing my hand, pushing it up against my chest, watching myself bleed out in a Jeep. I remember the blood sloshing back and forth on the floor of that Jeep. And we didn't, we didn't turn to see my arm. And then, you know, I, I got myself into the hospital. There was no doctor. They couldn't give me any pain meds or anything. And, and they, the nurses just turned my arm off and uh, stopped the blood. They said, you had very little very little time to make it blood loss and shock. And, uh, we're going to get me in you know, 10 minutes or so they said, and, uh, that's what they told old Carlos that drove me in. And it, it was very, um, lucky, I guess, if you will, that he actually showed up, he pulled up in a pickup and he had a, a lost his leg on a drilling rig before. And he knew what to do in a traumatic situation would just get, get our butt moving to town as well. He could do, but one old boy that just showed up fainted and fell over. It was, there was enough blood around there and drama that he just passed out. Carlos was like right behind me, took his jacket off, wrapped my hand with his jacket, raced me to town and uh, running through stoplights. And 
people actually followed us into the hospital to give Carlos, you know, trouble for running like a crazy man through town. And uh, they called the cops and so on. And um, they see me come out of the truck. And I don't know how I mustered the energy to step out of that vehicle. But I remember just kicking the doors, you know, like pushing the doors with my leg ahead of Carlos. He, was, he wasn't able to keep up with me through the emergency room doors. And I fell onto the bed. I just went straight into onto the bed, fell down. And, uh, and then that time when you wake up, they flew me to Vancouver General. And all the experiences in that hospital, in, I was in the plastics and burns unit. And, you know, I was in a situation where, you know, before this, I had cowboyed. Uh, I had left school early. Uh, I, I could run a million dollar drilling rig. I was 19 years old. You know, I left school at 15. You know, I, the world was my oyster. I rode horses all my life. I was successful. I got ribbons. You know, I was I was like basically, you know, when I left the ranch, uh, ranching experience, which is just down half a million acre ranch, just down the road from where I'm at right now, called the Colshanna Cattle Company. You know, I could work in a cow camp and do whatever needed to be done on a ranch, rope, rope bulls if you need to, or whatever. So I, I had I had a lot of accomplishment in terms of confidence and yeah, I can bend the world around. And I wanted to buy real estate. And I wanted to be smart about money, and I you know I just wanted to learn horsemanship and become a vaquero and all this stuff. And when I woke up in that hospital, that was altogether different. And, and all of a sudden now, you know, from that period of time onward and all the post-traumatic stress of seeing myself bleed out in that Jeep um, and then looking for help and finding a clinical counselor who I went to for two years, three days a week, a, 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 an angel named Annette Kasahara. And, um, and she had dealt with other people that had uh, Vietnam vets and so forth and other people that had post-traumatic stress and um she had dealt with that and you know, brought awareness to me and you know it, it set me back where i'd be driving my truck and i can remember one day in particular where i knew i needed help and i, I could the physical part was you know i was on the way to physio actually but i wasn't you know stitches were out and you know I'm, i'd lost you know a good percentage like over over half of my hand in in feeling. So they put my hand back on, put my thumb back on, put the nerves in and took arteries out of my leg and nerves out of my other leg and hooked it all up. And, you know, so you only have half, I only have half, like my thumb and index and middle finger really don't have any feeling. The pinky finger has feeling, thank goodness, because that's where the reins go when I ride. <laughs> but uh, I found myself driving to physio one day, you know, for stretching and massaging. And my body was taken over by that event, by my mind, taken over. I had to pull my truck over. And I curled up on that bench seat, this little Ford Ranger. And, you know, I was shaking. I was scared. I was, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I couldn't go. I don't know how long I was there. And I finally, I remember exactly where I was sitting. I remember how cold I was. And I said, I went back and told my girlfriend at the time, who's Angie, my wife now, uh, and my mom and that, I said, I, I need some help here. And, uh, luckily we were able to find a mat. And then, you know, have that time with her. And, and then that put me on that path of all the hundreds of books that I read after this, you know, to, to, I, with horsemanship, what changed for me, cause I could, I could rope a bull. I mean, I could start a cold. I could not like I could now, but I could get one ridden and, you know, uh, in a, in a little 30 foot round pen, rope my horse every morning to go to work. And I had, you know, I could, I had a background in dressage. My mom was a dressage rider. So I had equitation and I was you know, all this stuff that, you know, I thought I was pretty good. 
And I thought I could, you know, do all this stuff. And I started to decide I don't care about the job anymore. I don't care about winning a ribbon. I don't, for me, it's not that um, anymore. When I came out of that hospital, all as I wanted to do was get out of that. Well, I was in the hospital, then I get home and I wasn't allowed to go outside because I had, you know, 152, 300 stitches in my hand and an external fixator, a piece of steel that went into the bones and they drilled it into the bones. And it held my hand apart because all the tendons and nerves and everything were cut. So when they put it back together and they hook those tendons back up, it'll crush all the bones that were are supposed to be held still. So they had to put this, it's like a cast, but you can't have a cast because it's too many cuts. My hand was literally the size of a football. So my arm wasn't and my wrist and hand. And uh, so I couldn't go out to the horses because this external fixator thing was into my bones. And that was a direct way of infection in case I'm outside doing mm. stupid stuff with the horses, you know, whatever. I just, I, they told me I couldn't go. So I'd look at them out the window and I couldn't go anyways, because if I got my heart rate up to move five feet and my hand went down, you know, even level with my heart, I couldn't walk anyway. So it, it was, I wasn't going out there, but all as I wanted to do was, was I wanted to be with horses. I wanted to just be with them. And I remember when I got to go out and there was a little mare I had there and her name was Blondie. And uh, I got to just brush her and smell her and I have never forgot that and I had learned the power of visualization uh, it was one of the only ways I could stop the flashbacks at nighttime and and it was it, it was a weird thing in your head where you, it's not just always a flashback of watching yourself lead out in a jeep it was it was just like shit would start rolling around in your head and there was no stopping it and it was not even something you could peg down as a, you know, this is like, I'm looking at a drilling rig crush me, or I'm looking at a scary thing happen to me. It was just like you know, a feeling you turn the lights on, it still wouldn't even go away. So I learned through with Annette and, you know, Dr. Bernie Siegel reading his books and Dr. Wayne Dyer and, you know, especially Dr. Bernie Siegel, when he talked about like how people could use the power of their mind to grow nerves and to get circulation and, and, um, and, you know, create insulin in their body and, you know, whatever, all these things. And I, I just went into that meditative you know, the, the style of meditation that is, you know, not to clear your mind and make your mind still, but the, more the Western style of meditation where you're going to focus on something. And so I would focus on circulation. I would focus on growing nerves. I'd focus on uh, riding horses and, and seeing, and, you know, and I had seen uh, Pat Pirelli play with a horse at Liberty on a video once. I've never seen that. And I, I imagined that my horses were coming to me and I didn't have to rope them. and I could ride them and gallop them on the hills and with nothing on them. Like I had this connection. I remember one of the big ones I used to visualize all the time was water skiing. You know, and I thought I'll never be able to water ski because I'll never be able to have that pull on my wrist. And uh, so I would visualize water skiing. And, you know, I visualized water skiing for hundreds of hours, you know, over the course of that two years at least, you know. Uh, and horses and everything else, whatever I was going to do. And whenever I get into that meditative state, and they, they say that nerves, like your your brain communicates through your nervous system through vibration, and there's different vibrations. There's alpha, there's beta, there's different vibrational frequencies inside your body. And when you're in that alpha state, which is not awake, not in deep sleep, but right on that cuspal point where you're not quite awake like in the morning or just before you sleep, but you're not quite asleep. You're not quite awake. You're not quite asleep. You're in this alpha state. And they say that that state is the highest 
vibrational it's alpha state which is the highest vibrational frequency for healing recovery and i couldn't get into that state and hold it very long because i either just fall asleep or i'd just be up in my head and awake and just too awake but if i could get into there for a couple of minutes i felt zero pain zero like i was going from med you know tylenols and tylenol 3 with codeine like every two hours uh 24 hours a day to when i could hold when i i went from that to like nothing when i could hold that alpha state longer so i would start i'd hold my i'd have my hand lay down in the bed my hand was above my heart uh on pillows and uh we actually had this little speaker and we put this little speaker beside my hand it was a five inch speaker and it would just go it was a tape cassette in that in there and the tape cassette they said it was the alpha vibrational sound and it wasn't a sound it was the vibration of the speaker it was more like like that so i would put my hand beside that speaker i would i would bring myself down into the alpha state that meditative state and i would focus on water smooth riding horses or my nerves growing or I, and I learned what nerves look like. I read the books. I, you know, we, my mom and Angie got me all kinds of stuff, what tendons look like and, you know, that kind of thing. And so I spent hours and hours and hours. And Annette said to me, you know, I think, I can't remember exactly her, but, you know, if you can do this 15 minutes, three times a day, it will help. It will help your state of mind. It will help with healing, all this. Well, work, I ended up doing it for, you know, two hours three, four times a day in the middle of the night, all of a sudden. And Angie, she was, we were together, like she we lived together there. She lived on the property and she would stay with me. She would have to sit there and listen to this, you know, in the bedroom. And, uh, but I would sit there for hours like that. And whenever I was, it felt like my hand was normal. I had no pain, zero, no medication, nothing. And uh, I, uh, I, my nerves, from what they said, my nerves should have grown from way back in kind of one third of my arm, uh, went all the way to the end of my fingers, which I can feel. They said, they, they said there was no way they were going to go that far, especially in 96 when they took, 1996 when they took nerves out of the back of my leg and put them in there with that microsurgery. And, uh, I, I believe I helped grow them. You know, whether I did or didn't, it was a, it was a way of me starting to take control of my life. Um, and it wasn't, it, thank God for the amazing doctors and the nurses and oh my gosh, like all the, the, the physio and the people that were involved. But this was a way of me also being a part of my healing. And it was a, it was a change in my life. I remember Annette, her, her late husband, he's an amazing man. His name is Osam Kasahara and he was into Aikido and uh, Osam, I was with him one night and I love, I wanted to do martial arts all my life. I, I loved martial arts and I particularly loved Aikido, but the way they talked about the energy and, you know, how it's like a defensive offensive thing where you're not actually offensive, but in your defense, you're taking the person's energy and they, since they're going to pay the price for this, you know, they're offensive. So that, so there's this way of accepting energy, but redirecting it and not, you know, not locking horns with it. Right. And Aikido really appealed to me, right? So I wanted to study Aikido and Annette said, you know, Osam is a black belt in judo and he's a, he's a, he's a trainer, but if you want to go at night after the judo classes are over in the judo club, Osam will hang out with you and do Aikido and teach you Aikido and, and stretch your hands and stuff. I said, oh my gosh, I'd love to. So I'd go down there three nights a week with him. We'd hang out, it was late at night, and uh, there was one other gentleman there that had some a real physical 
issues of swelling in his joints and stuff. He's a nice, nice guy. Anyways, we three of us would hang out. We'd visit at the end of the sessions, Aikido's sessions. And, and by now, of course, you know, I've no swelling and no external fixator. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm two years out, right? But still not, I'm about a year out, and I'm still not mentally really where I'd like to be or... Anyway, so I'm sitting there with Hassan one night, and he could tell I was just, I was just withdrawn. I was, it was, it was really down on, on things, and you know, nothing was really going for me. And you know, I, I had been used to. Remember, I was, you know, I could run a drilling rig at 19. I left school at 15. I could, I started cowboying at 14 up at this ranch. I was riding with those, those, those cowboys and cowgirls, and trotting out with eight, eight, eight of them, and ten dogs, and living in a cow camp, and you know, like lots happening in life. And uh, here I am, and I can't hardly get started to, you know, button my shirt up or get my right arm sleeve buttoned up without Angie helping me. So, uh, you know, I was down, and he said, Jonathan, he said something that changed my life. And, uh, and I've used this every single time I've had a setback. I use this with COVID. I use it with my boys all the time. And he said to me, you know that you can choose to suffer or you can choose to heal. And that's your choice now. And what hit me about that work is that when you're, when I was hurt like I was, and it was up to Carlos to get me to town and the pilots and the doctors to get me to Vancouver and the nurses and, and the doctors to help me when I was in Vancouver and the physio people to help me and the net to help fix me. And it was all of this stuff was in their hands. And that's where I thought the power was. And uh, I didn't, I didn't look at it like, do you mean I can have a part of this? Do you mean that I can have a part of my healing and my, like, it's me that's going to choose to suffer or heal? So which one do you want to choose? And, and even though it was a pretty dark place and I still was suffering with a lot of post-traumatic stress, I, I said, I want to choose to heal and whatever that means. But I want to do that. Like I want to, I want to choose to heal myself. And that's where that sent me on the journey. And that's where the lessons from Annette and Bernie Siegel and all those authors, um, you know, started to like, so I took it real serious and it put me on another level. And then when I started studying, you know, more on horses and horsemanship and my desire was to have horses want to be with me and I could see them scared. I could see them in anxiety. I could see them, you know, in these states, you know, particularly my gray horse, Quincy, which was years later, I could relate to that horse. I could look at him and say, brother, I feel you, man. And, uh, and I don't have to break this out of you. And matter of fact, you don't even have to change right now. We can wait a minute. <laughs> you know, we can wait a year. We can just work at this slowly. We could, you know, and to figure out how to help him help other horses. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it really came into my program, like what I think about when I think about horses and training or developing these relationships with horses is, are they always moving away from the pressure of the yield or are they ever moving towards the comfort? And to me, it, it, it made me, it was interesting what you said earlier about, you know, when you were looking at those things, like what if I'm suppressing these emotions, but it's conse the consequence of that are these other ones that I want to go towards, which is joy and happiness. So if I am suppressing these and I recognize I am, am I ever going towards the comfort of those 
which is a different motivation than doing away from the pressure of trying to make a payment, away from the pressure of the spur, away from the pressure of the bit, away from the pressure of society, away from the pressure of the show ring or whatever it is you do, versus going towards the comfort of what I desire, towards. And it was, those were cruxal changes. And they, they put a point on those lessons in a visceral way that I never would have given the attention to because, like we, like you mentioned with Brene Brown, I'm so bloody busy keeping up with just keeping up with my own busyness, I never would have had the time to reflect or the requirement to reflect on that. I'm mesmerized. Yeah, I don't know if that's, that, I don't know if that's more than, <laughs> that was quite a long windy go there, but I'm sorry. I, it's just that, that was what happened. No, that was, that was perfect. I've talked to people about you before to where I tell them, I say hanging with Jonathan Field is as a bit like if it's a cold day outside and you've been outside all day and you're kind of chilled to the bone and you come inside and you've got like a potbelly stove and you walk up to that thing and you feel the feel the heat, feel that heat coming off that potbelly stove. And I've always said to, to people that being around you is a bit like that. You have that sort of energy that comes off of you. I I feel it. And I think that story, and, and like I knew a little bit of that, but not a lot of that, that kind of, um, that kind of explains, I think, where a lot of that comes from. You know, I've been reading quite a few books on... Um, uh, shamanism lately and, and I don't mean like the dark arts you know casting spared spells and stuff shamanism but like the, the tribal medicine man the holy guy sort of thing and for the most part you cannot get to be a shaman unless you've had some sort of a near-death experience or really bad sickness or you know bad things have to happen for you to be able to have the insights to get to that that next level, that other level of whatever that is. And that, you know, that story of yours right there kind of, I think, uh, you know, puts a point to that. Um, so, you know, I think you had you had told me about the, the pulling over on the front seat of the Jeep and stuff, I think that time when we were up there on the mountain. But uh, I... So you had a, you did a um, a TED talk here a little while ago, and I and I learnt more about that in your TED talk as well. Tell us about what was your experience with that TED talk? How was that? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, it it was so. Uh, you know, the idea of the TED talk, I just I just loved that. You know, because of course one of the most popular is Brene Brown. Uh, right. You know, and when when you take people and and the idea of the ted ted conferences is it's like an idea worth sharing just that one idea take an idea worth sharing that that you know like i would love to hear your ted talk work like what idea would you want to share and and the great thing about the ted talk is the the idea that it's going to be less than 18 minutes so i'm a little windy so mine was eight, like 1845 <laughs> you know but the idea that it's it's less than eighteen minutes it takes the um, 
all the concepts that people would want to maybe drag on with, it, it just cuts them right down, which is so, so cool because you get the juice of somebody's talk. Right. And with mine, you know, mine was about finding your sweet spot in life. And, you know, the idea was that what I, the way I train horses, the way, uh, or where I go about horses, um, the way that I, uh, you know, try to operate in my life now is that I want to be inside that sweet spot. I want to try to find where that is in the given day. And the idea that I'm never going to get to an end where now I've arrived, that in fact, it's inside the journey. And I think that, you know, other ways that you'll hear it written about, talked about is, is, you know, when you're in flow, you're in flow with the task, uh, you know, and I can be in flow with the task or in flow when I'm trimming a horse. Uh, I can be in the moment there and appreciate where I'm at inside of that place when I'm driving the truck. Or I can be so far ahead or so far behind that I can't ever find that place where I can be inside a comfort. And the place I see it with horses in a herd of horses when they're in an exact location. They're not ahead of the, you know, they're, they're in the middle of a herd. They're not running ahead and the horse in front of them is kicking or they're not dragging back and the horse behind is biting. You know, you take a dull horse and somebody says, oh, he's so dull or he's such a runaway. Well, you put him in a herd of horses and after they sort of how to live in a herd, they're not dull. They go exactly the same pace as the rest. They're not ahead. They go exactly the same pace. And they all find this location. So there's pressure all around us and we learn by this pressure. But can we find relief inside that or do we just keep the pressure on and i you know one of the examples i used in the ted talk was you know a very recent example was i finished three weeks of camps right here at the ranch i had all these people come up and we had a wonderful experience we did big clothes and we just bought this new property and you know we were renovating and construction construction guys were there working and you know they were working quite late at night all the time so i finished the camp i closed it off with everybody we all you know we all had a nice visit and hugged goodbye and all that and I, I jumped in the truck and I was just like next, you know, and I was driving and I'm humming over to the ranch. I'm getting ready for a big morning. We're pouring concrete. We're doing this. We're doing that. And, you know, I stopped myself on the side of the road. I said, wait a minute. Hold on. We like, you got to celebrate that. What just happened here enough with the, like, the absolute next uh, thing that's got to happen and just put the pressure on yourself right away. And I, I stopped. I pulled over to show myself I could. I didn't have to run home in the next five minutes. I'm going to stop. I'm going to prove myself I can stop. And then when I stop, I'm going to go over the rest of this drive, enjoying this beautiful drive through the mountains. And I'm not going to let the rat race of me and my mind run to the next thing. Just, just race me over there, land at my kids and wife and blah, 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 you know, and then find out what's not working around the ranch and find out that to put the wall in the wrong spot. And no, I'm not, I'm going to let some space between the notes here. I'm going to give myself that spot and recognize that I am, in fact, right now living in my sweet spot. I just went to a wonderful camp. I'm in that spot. I'm heading over to my new ranch. We're renovating, going to see my wonderful family. You know, otherwise, I could turn all those great things into a pressure that's going to reflect right back at me when I got home, a pressure that's going to reflect right back at me when I get with my horses. Uh, that's going to reflect right back to me when I meet my contractor in the morning, um, when I'm racing to pour coffee and run out the house, whatever it was. So the TED Talk was that uh, kind of my evolution since my accident and kind of how I try to go about my life is finding it while you're in life. It's not a destination. And this has been written about 
you know, the, the road is better than the inn, you know, kind of thing, or uh, the journey over top of the destination. But it's it's to recognize that you are, you, you, and we all can recognize when we're not in flow, when we're off path. So for me, it's never about, you know, uh, am I right or wrong? It's am I on the path or am I not on the path? And if I find myself coming off the path and the way I'm living, the way I'm communicating, the what I'm doing, I just go, no, there's no sweet spot over here for me. There's all pressure. I've got to find, and it's not a place of bliss all the time. Work. That's part I tried to make the point of in the talk. It's not like, like it's not like I'm on the beach and I'm just, I'm in peace. You know, like sometimes I'm in my sweet spot when I'm in the middle of, you know, I, I'm in the middle of getting ready for a big event and I've got 62,000 things going on. And in a minute, I could let that overwhelm me. And I go, no, I'm in the middle of it right now. I'm in the prime of my life. I'm in shape right now. I've got, you know, people calling and the phone is going and the horses are coming. And that horse, you know, is, is not, I don't know if I can show him today or, or, you know, the trailer just broke down and we're going down. These are the memories. These are the things that we're doing. And we are in the middle of it. Effing A, you know, uh, be able to pull back in that and go, yeah, this is sweet spot right now you've asked for this this is what you wanted and it's it's the turmoil it's the energy it's the relationships all those things that are happening yes put the pedal on let's go so i that's i hope i got that across in my talk i I, I loved your tedx talk where where was that that was oh my gosh it was it was um in the san juan island it was so beautiful where is where is that washington state in washington state okay yeah, you take a little ferry over there. Anybody want to go visit that country? Oh, wow, it's it's gorgeous. Um, yeah, they're, they're really nice over there. And yeah, it was this little theater. I brought my son with me, Weston, and that was so cool because, you know, I'm not used to I'm I'm used to talking like to crowds of people or in this way in a candid way, but I'm not used to going up. And they're like, like they said, okay, can you send us your script? I'm like, my your what? <laughs> uh, I don't do it like that. Like you want, I can barely read. Like, you know, I can tell you lots of stories about how bad I am with scripts. Like, so I, uh, I really had some, I don't know if this is my sweet spot or not. (laughs) I don't know if this is where I want to go or not. When this whole script situation came about and, uh, so, well, and I said, can I give like more of a five bullet point outline? Cause that's how I normally, I've talked to like, you know, professors in Calgary University about horsemanship and taught the, taught them, you know, uh, what I do and five bullet points on my, on the inside of my hand, you know, and, and done okay. And I can do it in 18 minutes. And they're like, no, well, we kind of need a little more than that. And you're going to have to do the rehearsal and then see if you can do the same thing the next day. And uh, we're going to video both and whichever one is better or whichever one works better, we're going to keep. And so I had to do this rehearsal and I had to get this to a script to a level of, but then, and then be able to own it enough that I could, so I wrote the script and I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. Luckily I had lots of time. And then finally, the, the wonderful, uh, lady that was helping me, Amy, uh, I, I said to her, I said, Amy, I'm done with this script. And I took a picture of it in the fireplace. <laughs> I said, I can't. I said, you're going to have to, I, I literally have the picture still. I took a picture of it burning in the fireplace. I, I just effed it. I can't do the script thing. So I had to memorize it and uh, I obviously have to memorize it anyways, but I had to like get it out of my head that I'm reading it from papers. Cause I would be like, 
Hi, I'm Jonathan Field. I'm going to welcome you to my <laughs> talk today. That is the sweet spot where you just looked like, oh my God. So I burnt it. And then two days before I went down to, to uh, down to the, to the little theater at San Juan Island, I, um, uh, I came up to the ranch and, we, and I, I left the other place because we were in Reynolds and I'm teaching, I'm traveling, or excavators going, building. I, I took Weston with me over to this cabin I'm sitting in now. And uh, we're here. There's nobody here. And I did the TED talk to Weston. And here, this you know, 13 year old boy at the time, 12 year old boy, whatever. He has to sit on the couch, and I'm standing up in front of him, and I'm giving him the talk. And uh, and he's looking. He's seeing the pain that I'm going through in doing this and trying to get all the way through the end. And I would just grind it out, work like that, you know, like. And I would go, no, I'm in this. I I wanted like I wanted to be in it, you know, like I wasn't dreading it. it wasn't. And that's what I mean. Like I knew I was immersed in, I gave myself a place and the space to immerse it. Right. So I would go, I would go upstairs, have a nap. And I knew that alpha state was powerful for your brain to process. So I'd go upstairs, I'd have a nap, I'd get into that kind of state and I'd let myself just dwell there for like an hour. And Wes would be down there playing video games or whatever he was doing. There's no video games up here, but he's doing something, watching TV or something. So I come down, I go, okay, right. I'm Wes, you know, get on the couch, get ready. <laughs> I'm on the red dot, Weston. So anyway, so this kid went down with me to the uh, to the theater, and he watched me do the rehearsal. And by the time I get there, he's like, "Dad, how are you?" I'm like, well, "I'm great." And by now, I I'm the most relaxed. I'm you know wondering how the sound is going. I'm you know some of the other people who don't speak or don't maybe don't know how to prepare for that. They are stressed. <laughs> some of them poor folks. They were stressed like they're. You know, and the organizers, not all of them, but some of them were highly stressed. And by now I'm at my very most relaxed. I own the content. I own the information. I feel so happy to be here. I see the theater. You know, I'm, I'm wondering about the lights and the sound and where I stand and what, when do I go out? And, and then Weston got to see that kind of circle around. And, and I felt like I was just with the information. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a fun experience, but I work. I want to hear yours, but I, I highly encourage anybody. And from a communication point of view, um, oh, there's a book. The, the, he's the owner of TED, Chris. And I, I don't want to mispronounce his wrong name, but his first name is Chris. And it's a TED, TED Talk book. I highly recommend it to anybody that wants to just be better at communicating. Period. Yeah. Anybody that's getting ready for any kind of presentation, he just boils it down. It's like the thesis of it. I mean, it's just so well. It, it's the TED Talk on how to do TED Talks, but it's a whole book. Um, it's wonderful. Yeah, well, you know, one of the reasons I asked you about that is because I was wondering if you had, I mean, you've, you've answered all my questions because I was going to ask you if you practiced it or all that sort of stuff because I, you know, like Brene Brown does not write she just it's off the cuff sort of a thing you know she has some bullet yeah. points and I'm kind of the same way and if we're videoing here and I'm working with a horse it's so easy but if we're videoing and Tyler says you know Tyler will be my son will be videoing and he'll say okay you've got to tell him your name and you've got to tell him you know what you had for breakfast and you go tell him what color your shirt is I'll start out and I'm like yeah g'day I'm Warwick Shillin for breakfast I had oatmeal and oh shit what color is my shirt oh it's red okay so G'day, I'm Warwick yeah. Schiller, and what's the next thing? And this goes on yeah. for a while, and then I'll go, G'day, I'm, who the bloody hell am I? You know, like I cannot, I have a hard <laughs> time with when I have to say certain things, but if you just allow me to vomit my thoughts up, it, it comes out quite well. And I thought your TED Talk was was 
awesome. How many views has that thing had, do you know? I don't know because there's two. There's a YouTube one and then there's the one that they have um, that doesn't show the views. That's oh, actually on okay. their website, so I'm not sure. But I've had, you know, just the other day I had somebody with this COVID thing. They listened to that talk and uh, they were in New York City. She wrote a nice thing to us and she just said, this is exactly what I needed today. Hmm. Thank you so much. And uh, so we still get you know quite a bit of con- uh, communication back from it. But, you know, the one thing that um, I, I learned from it, and it, I think it's such a valuable thing. Uh, it was like, you know, when we talked about Tyler writing a speech, uh, you know, and, and never using the speech. It's, you know, learning to get it to the point where, you know, you've scripted it out and you've practiced it. And you like when I do a talk on horsemanship, Sam, you know, I'm the same as you. It just it comes off the cuff because it's 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 in the moment with the horse and it's based on thousands of hours of talking on that topic. But I don't talk typically on these topics. I don't do a self uh, uh, help or, or my life story talk at clinics. I, I talk horsemanship and how that I can help people with their horse and what they're doing or what position they're in or what thoughts they could have that would help or things that you're doing that would help. So it's so out of my, to talk about myself in that way and do it under 18 minutes is and do it twice exactly the same or as close to the same as you can, you know, it's not exactly the same. Um, The second talk was better than the first one because I had kind of even known it even more. It was so interesting doing that. It was such a good experience because it made me think about my words. It it was such a great exercise to become more concise and more clear about what is the juice of what you're saying and not let myself kind of like I can, you know, kind of follow the rabbit hole. So right. Um, so first, people want to watch that. It's on TED Talk. It's Jonathan Field. Is it called Finding the Sweet Spot? Yeah, I think it's, yeah. yeah finding it, yeah, that's right. Okay. So, you know, all of my guests, I, as you, if anybody's listened to the podcast before, you know that I email them 20 questions ahead of time and they get to choose four or five or six. And uh, then I weave them into the conversation. And with Jonathan, he said, hey, Ask me any of them. And so Jonathan hasn't yeah, told course. me what he'd like me to ask him. But one of the ones that there's only been one person who has not volunteered to answer this next question. And I'm going to answer it for Jonathan because I've got a great story about this. One of mm. the questions is, what is your relationship like with fear? And so far, there's been one person who didn't, not he didn't want to answer it, he didn't say that was one of the questions that he he wanted me to ask him and on the podcast i hit him up it was patrick king actually and i said so why didn't why did you skip that one he goes oh well i'll answer that one too if you want i just there were other ones they wanted to talk about but so almost everybody has commented on fear and i gotta tell everybody listening i'm gonna answer jonathan's you can answer it too jonathan but i'm gonna tell you the story that i know Mm. we were at Mm. a horse expo um I forget where it was, but Jonathan and my wife and I went out to dinner. And what was that wine you had, Jonathan? Because my wife said that was beautiful. Was it barbed wire or something? Oh, I think it was fence? decoy, I think. Decoy. I knew it had something to do with it was decoy. That's what it was. Yeah, it was a, a red a one. Duck. It was yeah. a duck, yeah. And we're having dinner. Yeah, good one. <laughs> we're having dinner, and Jonathan looks across the table and he says, You know what? A few years ago, I realized I'm scared of being punched in the face. 
So mm-hmm. I go to boxing three nights a week, and he says, you get punched in the face enough, it doesn't bother you anymore. He says, in fact, if you'd like, and maybe this was the wine talking, Jonathan, but he's, we're in the restaurant, and he goes, matter of fact, if you want to punch me in the face right now, I don't care. You can, you can do it if you like. And so <laughs> that, to me, to answer the question, what's your relationship like with fear, I would say that you would go towards it. You would, you would investigate it because that, that's not everybody's, that's not everybody. I mean, I'm sure almost everybody on the planet would say, yeah, I'm scared to get punched in the face, but they don't necessarily just go to boxing three nights a week and get punched in the face so much that now they're good with it. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember that conversation and I remember that feeling in me for, you know, all your life or all my life, I was afraid to get punched in the face. I had been punched in the face a few times as a kid, just school, you know, uh, school things. And, um, you know, I, I didn't, I, I kind of, that, that thought, like martial arts, you know, it's kind of tactile and you're kind of in there close. And, but that, that away from you and then that punch in the belly or in the face, it, it worried me, that thought. did, And I kind of always avoided that. I didn't like fighting. I wasn't a fighter by any means. So, but I, I don't know why. It was just something in there that had that. And I, I just, when I, when I had the opportunity, I could, uh, my, my closest friend from kindergarten who I was raised with, who I still see, you know, talk to every week. Um, we're, you know, he very, very driven guy. His name is Grant. And, uh, he, uh, he just wanted to go box or I, I think I brought it up or I remember how it came up. Anyways, he found a boxing club that we could go to, or he could go to, but it was not an exercise boxing club. This was a, this is a training club. It was just like, there is no 40 year olds in here. There's like 14, 20, 25 year olds. And you're, that's it for all those are trainers. And because he was such a worker and so cool and such an inspiration to other people in the club, uh, I was able to get in there as well. And then we started going three days a week and I think for a couple of years, you know, it was the best shape I'd ever been in. And, um, and then you learn how, well, I learned that boxing is so much about balance, timing, rhythm, the practice, the, the breathing, the center of gravity, um, position. And, and I love, I had like a, a great guy. He was a 24 year old guy that was a coach. I mean, he, he might as well have been Muhammad Ali as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he was an amazing uh, mentor and coach, uh, a great boxer, I'm sure. But just as far as like, I thought he was a rock star as a coach. Like, he allowed me when I was feeling so frustrated, like so nervous in the ring when we would spar with somebody, the first guy I sparred with, um, his name is, uh, Oh my gosh, it's slipped up in my mind here. But anyway, this guy's, you know, a, a, a fighter. I mean, that's what he's doing. And I was, I, he, I could hit him anywhere that he, that I could hit him. And he was going to like hit me anywhere except the head that this is my first time in. And obviously this guy can not hit me that hard because when you can get a shot in your liver, knock you out, you know, or a body shot and knock you out, especially a guy like him. So, and I was so new. So I felt. So he would give me little tags in the head, very, very light. And, but then he would tap my body and you know, suck me back a little bit. And I remember I, I couldn't hit his head. I couldn't hit him. I wouldn't, my, I, I kept going like, mm, my hand would slide off the side or I'd pull the punch or I was not letting go. I couldn't Cal, my coach. He's like, Jonathan, you got this. this is, you got to do this. And I really had this like hold back to hit this guy in the head. I, I just was not, I didn't want to do it. And finally he goes, 
dude, you're wasting my time. You better do it now. And I'm like, okay. I, I kind of chuckled. All right, man. Are you I'm like, oh shit? And um, so I did it, and he turned his head down, and I didn't hit his nose or his eyes or anything. And it hit the top of his head, and he let me hit the top of his head a couple times like that. And then I was like, okay, I can do this. And then he started to block it. And I could see that he's not going to, I couldn't hit him again if I tried. Right. But it was doing him no good for me to, to not, try to not hit him. I, I, then I was trying to hit him as hard as I could or any time I could, any time I could get a shot. But I couldn't hit him. He was too good. And I realized, wow, there's the art. He's slipping these things. He's back. He's just out of range. It just touched him. And, um, and I, you know, I would open myself up. And then he would give me a little tag and teach me. And I thought, what an interaction of flow we're in here. I would get so excited between rounds. You know, after I got in shape, you know, first between rounds, you're dying. You want to go in a fetal position. You're going to barf. You know, you're, the wind is you know, so much adrenaline and anxiety of being in, the, you know, in this situation uh, when you finally get you know, into the ring. Um, and just the light spark. I mean, this is like a, I'm a novice, extreme novice. And, uh, but being with these guys and, and they're, uh, their talent and it was cool work. It was just amazing. And yeah, you get over getting hit in the face. And Grant, I, Grant got good enough where I could hit him anywhere as hard as I wanted or could, but he couldn't hit me in the head, you know, because neither one of us could take a concussion at this age, especially, right. nor do we want to. And but but I, but I could hit him anywhere because he was getting good enough where he could block and slip, and I wasn't hitting that hard just because I couldn't hit that hard compared to like him and these other guys. So, uh, but I was getting frisky and he's just doing defense and I'm like opening myself up and, and he just stepped to the side and cracked me in the ribs and he busted a rib. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I'm like riding horses every day and I'm at boxing at night and I got a cracked rib of my best friend, Grant. <laughs> like, I don't know if I should keep doing this. Like, I'm, where am I going with this? So, uh, I stayed with it for another six months or so, but then, you know, it just, life got so busy and we moved and. It was a fun experience. But now you're not about not worried about being punched in the face anymore. No, no. You know, we had not a, that I want to be punched in the face. Let's and, clarify that for anybody listening. Right, yeah. <laughs> um unless you've had half a bottle of decoy and then you might say, Yeah, let's just do it. But yeah. <laughs> that part I don't remember, but I, I I believe you, I believe you. Oh, no, you did you did you did tell me that. Um we had a girl stay with us, an intern a few years quite a few years ago now, and she was um into dancing, into salsa dancing is what she was into. And when she went to college, she chose to go to college in Mexico City um, so she could fully immerse herself in the salsa dancing scene. And she told me a dance saying that I think applies to everything. And it, she said that beginning dancers tend to take intermediate lessons and intermediate dancers tend to take advanced lessons. But advanced dancers take beginning lessons. And I was doing a clinic in um, New Zealand a few years ago, and there was a, a lady in the clinic. She's a female boxer. At the time, she was an amateur. She's since turned pro, but she was an amateur, and she'd had 20 fights, 11 wins, and nine losses. She'd res represented New Zealand uh, seven times, I think, as a female boxer. Anyway, she had just got a new coach because she wanted to go pro, and she just got a new coach, and I... She's, and after I told her that saying at the, at the, the clinic about advanced, you know, beginning dancers take intermediate lessons, intermediate dancers take advanced lessons, and advanced dancers take beginning lessons, she said, oh, yeah, it's the same with the boxing. She says there's a boxing saying that basics wins fights. And she said, when I started with my new coach, I've been with him for the last three months. I haven't done anything except work on the jab for three months. No speed bag, no yeah. heavy bag, no... You no know, uppercuts, no crosses, 
the jab. He says the jab is your that where you start, and he says we ha- if you're going to be a professional, we have to perfect your jab. It's not that's where you start, and that bit that foundation is not good enough to build on. And so she's anyway. I don't forget how many months later, maybe six months after that, she had her first professional fight, which she won against a more experienced opponent and I messaged her on Facebook and I said, hey, congratulations, I saw you won, how did it go? And she said, well, she was much better than me, but I wore her down with the jab. Wow. That's when I, I love that because it's, I see that with people with clinics all the time. My most advanced students come back to my first clinic. They, they get the most out of the first course I teach. And when I went to that club and that's why I liked that coach, that young guy, he he had an old English boxing coach that was a similar um, philosophy on the foundation. And so I went there and I got to skip for the first three weeks. I got to skip. I got to run up and down the stairs and I got to go as slow as you could possibly go looking at myself awkwardly in a mirror doing the jab. I remember one time I, I was like, I don't know, a year in, I thought I'm going to switch stances, and go southpaw, right? <laughs> I tried it, and he seen me go. You're not good enough. <laughs> Get back to normal. And then I wanted to learn how to slip, and he's like, "You don't have the balance to do that yet. Quit with that bullshit." <laughs> you know, like, I want to learn how to slip a punch, and you know, it's just it was. I was just like, "Man, this is so refreshing, and it's so great to be at the fundamentals." Yeah, you know, I did some clinics, and I've done some clinics in Scotland, and the first. A clinic I did in Scotland was organized by a guy and he was telling me that he was a black belt in karate when he was 12 and he said you know what I was as I was going up the ranks he says I thought when I get to be a black belt I'll know everything you know I'll know everything and he said when I got to be a black belt he said then I wanted to be a second hand black belt and so he thought I'm going to learn new stuff and he said what I found out to be a second hand black belt you don't go further you go back to the very beginning and you learn everything you've already learned with a black belt's eyes. And you cannot learn it the first time around with a black belt's eyes. You've got to learn it at the level you can learn it at. But it doesn't mean you've learned everything about it. You can only you learn as much as you can about it at the, the level of consciousness that you're at. And once you get to the black belt level, he said, then you go back and you relearn the same stuff all over again with a different perception. And that sounds like that's what these people are doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's a great, it's a great philosophy, a great way to look at it. You know, ultimately, even with horsemanship, we're doing circle or straight line. It's either one of the two, you know, so it's the combinations thereof. And how do we adjust and balance that horse and help that horse uh, do those things better and better from all different positions, different angles, different disciplines. And uh, looking at, looking at that each time we teach someone, each time we play with our horse, you know, go out and do things. Um, it, it's right back to that, that jab, right back to the balance. Like the thing that, that really, you know, I love now I love, you know, surfers or, you know, like, like Tyler's a surfer. And, and you think about surfers and the balance they have, the boxers and the balance they have, uh, and, and balancing what we have, this great thing that we got to do is we actually have to get us balanced and balance the horse. And uh, the more I study, I hear, you know, masters like Charles DeComfy, who I got to be around a lot of classical dressage rider uh, as a kid and, um, you know, reading his books and, you know, continuously going back through his information. I mean, he's just like everything begins and ends with balance, balancing the horse, the impulsive horse, the horse that wants to run, 
how many times that I've seen now where you put that horse into balance and they're not dropping their shoulder, falling to the inside and trying to catch their legs as their legs are outrunning, as their body is outrunning their legs. Yep. You put them into balance and they don't run away. They're not impulsive. They don't need a bigger bit or whatever someone might prescribe to that. Yep. No, put them in balance. Yep. Now he'll just walk or look lope along or canter along. Yes. Uh, Patrick King sent me an audio of Charles the Country a number of years ago while I was driving around somewhere. And um, I remember listening to that and <laughs> listening to it. I'm thinking, this has got nothing to do with horse training at all. I mean, it was about horse training, but there's, it's just so much about, you know, controlling yourself and being self-aware and just your perspective on life. And it was, yeah, it was, it was very, very, very cool stuff. Um, he, he has books. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I mention this. He has a book that he released. He, he gave me a copy last time I seen him. And, um, and it was a book and it was about, it was one of his only life story books. And it was about his escape from tyranny, essentially, and his history. It's an easy read. It's worth a read just to know his history, but to know what was happening at that time. And, uh, it was a very fascinating book. I, it, it's, it, 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 I, the title escapes me, but it's, it's, I think it's, um, something to do. It, it's his life story, but it's like an escape from tyranny. Mm. Well, speaking of books, one of the questions I, that a lot of people have me ask them is, what book do you recommend to people most? And not necessarily your favorite book, but one that you, book or books that you think people should read or, books that have influenced the way you look at the world. Do you have any suggestions for those? Yeah, for sure. I think books is always such a personal thing for the mood that you're in or where you're at in learning. And um, I think in just a general book that I recommended or given away a lot, uh, just as like, here, try this, like take a look at this, because it just outlines so many different perspectives in a really great way is called the success principles by Jack Canfield. And it's, um, it's a, a number 50 principles or something like that. And first, first little chapter, it, it goes through a quote, the content of the, of the chapter one, the first chapter is take responsibility. Um, another one, you know, might be, uh, there's just a whole bunch of great concepts in there. And there's a quote, there's a content, there's a story and there's a close. And, each chapter you could just pick up. And for years, I would just pick that book up and just read a chapter that meant something to me. It was almost like having 20 books or 50 books, in fact, right. into one book. And it's a fantastic book for that. But personally, like for myself now uh, and for years, if you see my library now, a lot of my libraries in my phone, but, um, you know, just even on the books that I have, uh, I have, I love people's biographies. I love it when they write it or someone else writes an autobiography. Um, you know, from Christopher Reeve to Michael J. Fox, to Wayne Gretzky to Muhammad Ali. Um, I read a great book, you know, it was just about all the people that had fought Muhammad Ali and they told a story about, uh, uh fighting him. Um, you know, listening to, uh, Christopher Reeve, who had, you know, been in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, wrote the book, is Nothing is Impossible. And he did that and he can't, you know, he can hardly speak. Uh, I'm not sure if he can speak but he got this book written and it's the most amazing book talks about his story, his life now. And I read that book probably, you know, eight years ago, but there's so many things that stuck with me. Michael J. Fox with Parkinson's and his struggle there or how his life has changed. Uh, I love books that are firsthand from people that have, um, 
you know, and then I get into books like Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world and old horse history books and stuff like that. So I kind of go through these different, like I'm sure like you do, uh, um, Wayne, Dr. Wayne Dyer has been a big one. Dr. Bernie Siegel, uh, has been another one when I was in the healing phase, you know, when I was really looking for that. And, uh, as far as the horse book goes, one of my favorites is the $80 champion. And that's the book of the, uh, the horse. Have you heard of that book? I don't think I have. I'm writing this stuff. Oh, it, yeah, it, it's a, it's a great book. It's about a jumping horse that was bought and, uh, it was on a, on a, to be put down as on a, on a, you know, been to the auction, I guess, and was in a, in a truck that the horses were headed to the slaughterhouse. And, and, uh, this, this, this guy got him off the truck. And anyways, they had the most, it's a, the most, it's a true story. This horse standing ovations in Madison square garden. And I mean, he is just, it's an amazing story. The $80 champion. Elizabeth Letts is the author. She's wonderful. When I actually got to meet her, and after I read the book, I got to meet her. And I mean, the, the thing with what, what amazed me about how um, just respecting to somebody who's such a talented author, how she could just put that story into words and weave that together and keep me interested in about this horse. And I typically don't read a lot of horse story books. I, uh, I typically don't. Um, but it, she had me in that book. Really? Yeah, that's, I don't read a lot of horse story books either, but, one of my guests on the podcast recently is a lady I know from Scotland, and she's an author. She's a Sunday Times best-selling author, and she has this. She lives in Scotland, but she's British, and she has this beautiful accent. But she has this way of the. She she talks like she writes, and she could write what she had for breakfast, and it would sound just amazing. And she was she has this this uh, off the track thoroughbred mare, this red mare that she calls her the red mare. I think she has a Facebook page for the red mare and writes about her all the time but she talks about how she goes out in the pasture with the red mare and they just stand there and she said and i think about how we are both made of the remnants of ancient stars and what's the next line something about we're both we're both made out of the remnants of ancient stars and then she says something else and then she said and then we we I, i we creep up and just peer across the species barrier at each other. And it was like, it was just poetry. And, and, uh, you know, wow. she writes, she writes the same way, but, uh, yeah, if you're ever bored and want to listen to that podcast, her name's Tanya Kindersley, but yeah, just an amazing human being. Oh, I, oh. Some of the stuff that she said was, yeah, it was, it was very amazing. Um, I'm going to ask you some of these other questions here, if you don't mind. Of course. This one, I'm interested. What's an unusual habit you have or something out of the ordinary that you really love doing? <laughs> uh, uh, you know what I love, Mark? I love a fresh pair of socks, buddy. I, I go through socks in a day like probably no one. <laughs> I can rejuvenate and go ahead with anything I need to do with a nice fresh pair of socks. Fresh pair of socks. I don't socks. know what it is. Hey. Yes, they're like, yeah, man. That's I have that, a I have a sock drawer like no one else's. That's 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 perfectly good. Here's one that I don't know. I'm sure you'll have some great advice for this. Uh, the question was, what advice would you give to people who are about to enter your occupation? And this one's always got a caveat. It says this one may be difficult, as many of us have occupations that are far from normal. Um, what? Right. Because you're not really a horse trainer, are you? 
Not really, no. Yeah. No, my horses don't work like that. And I don't train other people's horses for them very often. I mean, right. problem horses I take off, but I bring the people. The people have to be there. Right, yeah. You're more of a people trainer. but And so I don't know if that's, a, like that's an easy horse. question to answer or not because how many people are doing what you do? You know, it's not pretty, it's not normal. Yeah. You know, like I, so what I do is if I do take horses for training and I obviously have over the years lots, you know, but I, I insist that like I had a jumper horse come up from California and I insisted the owner come and I wanted her there. She has a string of jumper horses and horses all over the world. And I'm like, well, I want you to be there for a part of it. And she's like, well, send the trainer. I said, I want the trainer too. <laughs> but if, but I want you to you know, know what's happening here. Yeah. So then, and the reason I did that work is because I don't want to come and help that horse who was an extremely difficult stallion uh, that had huge potential and did do really well in the world of jumping, but um, was really uh, going downhill badly. I mean, just very, very dangerous. And I took the horse and I said, I don't want to get this horse walk, draw, canter, going back over jumps again. And you put it back in the same program that caused it to get like this. And then you say, you know what, we even sent it to that horse whips up in Canada or whatever, that right. Jonathan Field guy, and he's still a basket case, so now we have the right to cut his head off. Right. You know, and um, so I said, you guys have to be there, so you're vested into it. And so then when I do horse training like that, lots of times because it's very costly endeavor for them, um, then I, I'll take those horses and I'll help them out, and, and but I want them invested in it. I don't want to just like they're sending them off to get fixed. I don't, I don't, I don't really do that. So, but what would advice would I give? Um, the one, the one advice that I would give was given to me and it still stands to this day is you look after your horsemanship. So your horsemanship can look after you and that has saved my life, uh, and built my career and helped me in uh, situations that I could have never prepared for. Uh, it's just continuously be passionate as a student of the horse to before I put myself out there as a professional and took anybody's money was to do lots of practice. And I mean, years of it, as much as I could took on all. And I still to this day will take horses and don't charge anything. Cause I think I can learn as much as value as I can bring to the horse. And because I want that opportunity, I don't want to be limited by a person's money to hire me for us both not to get the benefit of helping that horse. So I'll say, Hey, like this is a, let's do this. You know, I'm going to learn some stuff. This is part of my, ongoing education and you know you couldn't afford it anyways and the horse is not going to get help if i don't jump in and you know let's do it and that to me is something that you you're giving back but you're also learning and that has saved me you know i've been in situations as you know as we get thrown into where someone hands us a horse or at some expo somewhere or some clinic somewhere um i've had i know i know a colleague that's been killed by a horse in a clinic uh, the gravity of the situation is serious. And if we don't continually look after our horsemanship for all the variety of horses that we get, uh, our, the price can be very, very high. And uh, in terms of our safety, our life, the student safety, a horse's safety, and, and uh, whatever situation we're dealing with. So most people try to stick their stake in the ground. They get a website. They, you know, they got a $1,500 website. Now they got a business card. Now they're going to be a horse trainer or they're going to be a, a cult starter and they're going to take their time and only take the good ones and, you know, really just slowly go about it in a local way. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, I, I don't think the training for so many of them is enough. The apprenticeship period, the, you know, when you look back through 
you know, history of what it took to be a horse trainer. Like at the Spanish School of Riding, you do 10 years and now you're called apprentice after 10 years. Right. right. Now don't, you have don't a you, Don't learn. you spend two years taking lessons on the lunge line? You, can't, you don't even have any stirrups or reins? Yeah, like that, that's the kind of, you know, and when I was a kid, that's the kind of training I got. Like just learn balance. You know, learn how to, you know, that's how I taught my kids. I mean, they rode bareback grabbing a hold of the mane and I was on the lunge line on the end. And, and it's, but when you start to want to take somebody's horse and, and that horse is going to, because it's got some issue or there's a challenge, and you have to really be able to weigh up how, what part of the challenge is the person? What part of the challenge is the horse? What part of the challenge is the history of the horse? Uh, and how much of that is learned ingrained behavior? What part of this is just clean, fresh, normal horse stuff? Right. Uh, that is just in colts or in mustangs or in in uh, you know sensitive scared horses or what part is now learned evasion where they're going to kick you in the head because they meant to they've done it before they can do it and they can come out of nowhere with it they don't even build up to it they just go you know what this is about the time when you step here I'm going to go pow there and that's a learned evasion that's that's something that they started out as legitimate self preservation but then ended up being something where they go. Yeah, I know how to get around this. I know how to get myself out of this. And that's not to blame the horse because that's how they've, they've had to survive. And those are, those are things that a lot of mentorship, a lot of education, investment, you know, a lot of study, a lot of practice. People don't look after the horsemanship enough. They start worrying about my English rider and my Western rider. You know, uh, I'm jumping, you know, meter 10. Now I'm going to go meter 20, meter 30. Now meter 40, you know. Or whatever it is, you know, yep. in, in the reigning world, I'm sure it's the same. And there's this, you know, the horsemanship, regardless of the outfit I wear, pair of droppers or a cowboy hat. That that's that's a side of the point. The horsemanship is the horsemanship. Yeah, you know, I was watching uh, the running fraternity online last year, and you know, I haven't been going that much for the last number of years. Um, and I was just amazed at how how much better they get at getting horses to do. Like, the, there was some stuff that people were doing there that five years ago, how not what they were doing because patterns is kind of the same, but how they were doing things five years ago would have been impossible. And now there's half a dozen or ten of them that can do it like that. And I was, I was sitting wow. on the couch with Robin just jumping up and down. And, you know, the reining's like like any other high-level discipline that I think, um, and I don't, I don't, I try not to be negative on the podcast, but, you know, the, the, the horses have a, have a hard job to do. But the thing that I, I was looking at was, oh, my goodness, the, the, the guys are, those guys are so good at, at figuring out how to get a horse to, mm. you know, usually they're not having behavioural issues. You know, I think they understand yeah. that well enough. It's not like they rear or run off or whatever, but just how to, oh, I, I was just amazed watching them like, oh, my goodness, the, the, just the, 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 because just the ability to, like, problem solve and break things down into steps and into smaller steps and, and then bits, and put it all together and make these amazing things. I mean, I, uh, I was I was fascinated watching it last year. I was like, wow, these guys are just, um, yeah, just unbelievable. Now, I, I, they, maybe they, they probably can't fix someone's average problem horse, but the the level of 
the, the, the level they can get a horse who has the physical and mental makeup to do it, and what they're going to do is just, it was just mind-boggling. I was, I was, wow. I was very impressed with it. Um, another cool. question for you here might be, what accomplishment are you most proud of, if you have one? Well, you know, it was just, I know it seems like a bit of a bad answer, but my kids, you know, I, I, uh, that's what life is all about for me right now. It's become, you know, Weston and Mason and Angie and I both feel the same way. Um, Mason, you know, we moved these kids from where they, uh, we were one spot for 41 years. We went to the same kindergarten class that I went to. Um, my best friend I went to kindergarten with, they went to kid, they went to school with those kids of our closest friends we were in a very, very tight community and we just moved and they just had to make this major adjustment to all new friends, a whole new community, um, four hours away. And, you know, just watching them go through that and being able to handle that and now be thriving. You know, Weston is at the highest level of hockey that he can play at in Bantam level. It's 14 year old, uh, the AAA major Bantam team. And he's just made the captain of the team through a whole series of tryouts. Uh, and, can, can, uh, hey, hang on a second there, Jonathan. I'm going to ask you. So that's yeah. Weston. That's Weston. That's Weston. Okay. Is was he born before May? Oh yeah, the outlier concept. Yes. Was you he, know, was he born before yeah. May? Um, you know, no, he wasn't. He was born in June. I'll tell you something else very interesting because I thought a lot about that because my boy got me walking. Of course, I've read that book a few times. You know, obviously there's something to it because the numbers don't lie. Like Malcolm Gladwell said there's no question this the numbers of january february march even or or may even are you know uh, high in hockey weston's born in june and um and now he's captain of the highest level hockey you can get at his age group uh, in his on his team he had to work very hard to get there and he started hockey late very late like not early like these other kids have been on the ice for several years ahead of him he's only been playing for four years this is his fourth year and before that, he did just pond hockey, and we didn't do any hockey when he grew up earlier than that. Like, none. Like, he wasn't even on the ice. Hey, can you, can you, uh, can you like, give us a definition of something? Because, um, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of Australians listening to this. We don't get much ice. What's pond hockey? Pond hockey, well, in pond, I mean, we do both kinds of pond hockey. When I say pond hockey, what it was was it was just play hockey on ice in an arena. But we also do pond hockey where... We're on like a little, we have a, we do pond hockey at our house. So right now the kids have cleared the snow off of one of the, the little ponds or little lakes we have on the ranch and they go up there and they flood it. They, they pump the water out and they flood it. And Weston and Mason are up there all the time working on their ice and they play pond hockey up there. Yeah. <laughs> Canadians. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Crazy Canadians. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, but no, so Weston isn't, isn't born then, but he, He's he's grown a reputation for being one of the hardest working kids in the community, and um, he just somehow he's he's such a hard worker, and he's so diligent to the sport, and he gets it mentally. You know, um, as every proud as every proud dad would say. Right. <laughs> but so the yeah. question was, what accomplishment are you most proud of? And then you went to talking about it's all about the boys right now. And I remember when I yeah. you you and I were up on top of Grouse Mountain that time, I think, and I was talking about how. I was, I don't know if I was lucky enough or I planned it enough, but I kind of, with my son, 
the, the, the really formative years, I was around all the time for them. And by the time he got into high school where he's had his own car and, you know, hung out with his friends a lot, I was traveling a lot more then. But I, I felt like I was lucky I was around for those those formative years. And we, we you know, we have a really, really good relationship now. And, and I, I, I think it's really, really cool that you are, you know, making sure they're a priority at this time because it's it's stuff you can't get back and it's if you get it done it's, it's like putting a good foundation on a horse if you get it done right you don't have to undo it it doesn't fall to pieces you know yeah you know i was really inspired by garth brooks for this period of time these last few years because i've really you know you know compared to what i was touring a few years ago i've really cut it back the last four years I'm still doing a lot, obviously, and I'm still gone a lot, but I still try to bring them and so forth. But when Garth Brooks had his little kids and he was at the top of his game, um, and I remember when, he, if you remember when he shut it down and went off and he raised his three little daughters and, you know, made that a priority. And uh, there's a great documentary, which I just watched the other day, uh, reminded me of all that about his life and why he did it as a father and uh, the things that he was doing. And uh, I remember hearing that. And I had only very, very young kids, and I was still in heavy, heavy travel, like gone 100, no less than 180 days, but mostly uh, even more than that, and just completely immersed with six horses and, you know, that I was showing around and doing these big demonstrations with and so forth. And uh, there was just no time, day or night. And I just said, you know, when this certain time, I was kind of like calculating this time when it would be the most important, these formative years. And I, I'm really, grateful that these years I've been able to be there just a tremendous amount. I still travel and pop in and out, but you know, my schedule is, is a lot better these days where I can kind of be home a whole bunch for the important times. And then I leave and I'm right back and, and uh, more, a little more in and out rather than just out. I think, I think it's completely the, the most important investment we make right now is in those kids and, and watching like the other day, you know, I was, I was so proud to watch Mason, you know, a friend of mine came up, and they were riding in the car together and I got there and I wanted to show my buddy, uh, you know, this is where we're going to put the arena and this is what we did with the boiler. And this is what we did with the driveway. And this is where we cleared the land. And this is the trenching we did underground. And, and he goes, well, you just stop right there. He goes, Mason told it all to me. He goes, Oh yeah. And he told me this is where he goes to school. And this is what we did with the fence and why we went four rail instead of three rail. And why we went 10 foot instead of 12 and why we went, and I'm like, well, do I get to even tell you about my big boiler? He goes, no, I know all about it, about the pellets. <laughs> it was like, I was like, wow, Mason, good on your buddy. But see, I think that's, you know, when you were traveling and taking them with you before, I remember we, um, we homeschooled my son when he was in kindergarten because I was, we actually were traveling from one side of the U.S. to the other side of the U.S. Uh, showing horses. And he was, you know, so any night of the week, he might be at dinner in a restaurant with a table full of adults. And he, he was five years old and could sit there. And he was like a little old man. Like he could have a very adult conversation with you. And, and uh, I mean, you've met him. So you kind of, you know what he's like. Oh, yeah. Um, it's amazing. I think what you what you had done with the kids is, is a big part of that too. Like is... Um, you know, just broaden their horizons a bit, you know? Absolutely. And it, and it shows, you know, like in Tyler, I just, I remember meeting him and I remember thinking, man, this is a cool guy. I could visit with him. I wish I had more time to visit with him. And, and I hope I do get that chance, but you know, that exposure sitting at the tables, like both of our kids got, you know, uh, I think that's so important to involve them. 
I remember I was sitting uh, and I, I was really admiring him. It was it became like a second dad to me. His name is Mike Rose, and he was the manager of the Koshana Cattle Company. And he, I, I was living with him when I would go cowboying up in that country. And he, he kind of like a second dad because he would look after me. And when I was quite young there and take me out and give me my first horses up on the ranch and, you know, line me out. He was the, he was, he was the son of the owner. And, um, and anyway, he lived there and he had his little boy named Matty, who's a grown man now with two kids. But I remember sitting there watching Mike in the early mornings before Matty would go to school and they would talk about like carburetors or talking about like axes or they're talking about whatever they're, you know, something on the ranch cows or the, the yearlings or something. And, uh, and Mike was talking to him just like Maddie was like, Mike was talking to him like he was talking to the cow boss, uh, you know, exactly like an adult, like they were having this conversation and Maddie was five years old and Mike, Maddie would go off. And then Mike, I was 14 or 13, probably 12 actually the first time I showed up there. And he would talk to me exactly the same. We'd be driving in the truck, and he'd be telling me, he'd be asking me, and he just had this way. And I remember keeping that in me, like a, as a an example, like communicate with them, like 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 they're like they're fully understanding, like they're fully ready for that level of conversation. Not, don't talk to them like babies or kids, or you know, engage with them. Talk to them about the sale price or whatever it is. I remember Mike doing that all the time, and it was it was a really great. So when you meet, when you come across somebody like Tyron, now he was a young man when I met him. So obviously he's well-versed in communicating. We're, I think we were in a pub somewhere with you and Craig Cameron and Chris Cox. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were all having dinner or something. But I just remember meeting him and it was like, boy, there's so much to say. Like he's got so much to say, so many ideas. Uh, very, very cool person. Yeah, we actually had Tyler do. So the the 20 questions that I sent you, uh, one of the podcasts, so I usually have people answer four to six, you know, ask, I ask four to six of them, but one of the podcasts was just me answering all 20 of those questions. And uh, I was away somewhere and I came back and I said, I'll have to record a podcast for this week. And my wife said, no, I've actually recorded one. And I'm like, really? She said, yeah, I answered all the 20 questions. And Robin gave her version of all the 20 questions. And so then I said to Tyler, well, you may as well do it too. You know, people know who you are. You know, we refer to you all the time and stuff. So Tyler's actually done his own podcast on here and he answered all the 20 questions. And, you know, he's uh, he's 23, he'll be 24 tomorrow, actually. It's his birthday tomorrow. But when I was 23, I was an idiot. <laughs> like, his, <Yeah>. his answers <laughs> to the podcast, I'm like, that's like, you know, this is not yeah. his first trip around the sun, I don't think. Yeah, is, is is it up already? Because I'm gonna, I was I, I was listening to Robin's and I loved it. I didn't get, I was listening to it before you called today. I was I was checking in with hers and I, I mean she's such a nice speaker and just you can just feel her heart when she's speaking there. But is Tyler's up on the? Yeah, Tyler's is up. Yeah, Tyler's is up too. Yeah. Oh, I'll check it out. Cool. Yeah, you'll have to you'll have to check it out. Okay, well we've been going for close to two hours here, so we probably should wrap this up. Um, I could talk to you for. A whole lot longer. Uh, if so, if people want to find out more about Jonathan Field, where do they where do they find Jonathan Field? Probably my website, Seth. You know, Jonathan Field Horsemanship, and uh, that kind of gets everybody going. I'm on Facebook, Jonathan Field Horsemanship too. Post some on there. I have spells where I'm on there lots, and spells where I'm not on there at all. So <laughs> your website is what, that what, is that Dot, uh, I think dot, it's .net or .com. Yeah, if they punch it in, they'll find it. Jonathan okay. Field Horsemanship, it, it'll come up. Uh, so website, yeah. Facebook. 
Yeah, you bet. Okay. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on here. I was there was <laughs> there was times during that where I was just speechless. I've I've had so many guests on here where I'll just be my mouth will be hanging open just listening, and there was a, a large part of that where my mouth was hanging open listening. So thank you so much for joining us and all your wisdom and what you I don't know what just what you bring to the world. I think you are a um a very special individual and i think uh, i think you're doing great things in the world well thank you my friend it was a total honor and i'm you know i'm so glad you're doing this work i also think you're a very special individual in the world and it's just you know a real pleasure to visit with you i, I will have to do it again sometime because there's always like you say it's, it's been a couple hours but it, it, there's lots more to talk about but i um i wish you guys the best yeah well same to you and uh, yeah as soon as all this covid stuff clears up i'll be up there and have to come up to Canada and, and come visit. I'd love to see this place of yours. It sounds like it's absolutely stunning. Please do. It's, uh, we would love to have you. Hal will be here at the ready. I'll even get him a little bit in shape before you come so we can take him for a ride around the mountain. Oh, it's all awesome. south slope. There's a creek that comes right past the house. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have it. We've done a miles, miles of fencing and building lean-tos and water lines, and we're putting it all together. So I can't wait to have you guys. Make sure you get some apples there so I can give to him as well. Yeah. <laughs> I bought a bag on the way up today so that he's getting some ambrosia apples here. I'll get another one in a few minutes here. Excellent. Give him one for me. All right, buddy. Okay. Will do. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, best to you, my friend. Take care. Okay, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here on the uh, Journey on Podcast, and I hope you enjoyed Jonathan as much as I did. We'll uh, catch you guys on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.